Well, let's turn in the scriptures this evening to Romans chapter 16, where we come now for the second last time, uh, God willing, to the study of this great epistle. And so we're going to read this evening in chapter 16 and verses marked in our Bibles 17 through 23. And the passage is in the Pew Bible, page 950. And if you don't have an English Standard Version with you, there is one in the Pew Rack in front of you that will be helpful, I think, for you to use. Romans chapter 16 and verse 17. The Apostle has been giving his concluding greetings to the church in Rome. We were fascinated last Lord's Day evening by the sheer number of people he knew in a church which he had never visited. And if this is any test of really belonging to the church of Jesus Christ, it's a, it's a very challenging test. Uh, this was not the First Presbyterian Church of Corinth. Paul was in the First Presbyterian Church of Corinth when he wrote this letter. He had never been to Rome, but we noticed that he seemed to know around 30 people in the church in Rome, and perhaps he knew personally many more. And we observed last Lord's Day evening that the only possible explanation for the ease with which these names run off his tongue to his secretary Tertius, who is actually writing the letter, is because he was a man of prayer. He had prayed for a church he had never visited. And now he comes to his final appeal. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine or teaching that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus, greet you. These words coming at the end of Paul's greatest letter have often puzzled students of the New Testament. And the reason, I think, is fairly obvious. He has spent what in our English Bibles are 16 chapters expounding the sheer magnificence of the grace of God in the gospel. He clearly knows he is at the end of his letter. His last words had been, greet one another with a holy kiss. 
all the churches of Christ greet you. And then, as it were, out of left field comes this stunning warning about those who might easily lead these Christians in Rome astray. And it seems to many students of Paul's letter to the Romans so out of place that they find this a most puzzling way in which to end a letter. If you have ever engaged in a certain kind of correspondence, this will come as no surprise to you whatsoever. I have had, I think, six fairly intense correspondences in my life. That is to say, people with whom I've had regular correspondence by letter, remember letters, over protracted periods of time. The most extensive of these uh, is, of course, with my wife, Dorothy. A number of years ago, we agreed to destroy hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters we had written to each other. I kept my side of the bargain. I now rather regret it because I think I could fairly easily turn it into what would become a bestseller. But the next in volume in my correspondence was my mother. From the day I left home at the age of 17 to go to college until I think I was about 27, my mother wrote to me. She was a creature of habit. She wrote to me every Wednesday and every weekend, and she expected at least one response a week. And I have sometimes, as you know, commented not on these similarities between my mother and the Apostle Paul, although there were one or two of those. She was a woman of some authority. But uh, I've sometimes commented on the similarities between the way Paul ends letters and the way my mother ended letters. Long paragraphs and then an explosion of brief sentences full of information. And those closing sentences were sometimes, sometimes, maybe more than sometimes, punctuated by such statements as, I hope you're washing your clothes. And then when she became, I think, a little anxious that her darling second son had not responded to this part of the letter, are you washing your clothes? Or perhaps even when no response was given to that, a word of strong counsel. You make sure you're washing your clothes. Clearly, my mother believed that cleanliness was next to godliness. And so, in a sense, to anyone who has had a correspondence with somebody who cares for them, nurtures them, and nourishes them, as the Apostle Paul was caring for, nurturing, and nourishing the Christians in Rome, it really comes as no surprise whatsoever that towards the end of the letter, an anxiety, in this case, a spiritual anxiety appears in the heart of the Apostle Paul. And as it were, he unveils something that has actually run through this whole letter, uh, although we have never really stopped to examine it in detail, he is deeply concerned as a pastor 
We learned this morning from Paul's teaching in 1 Thessalonians 2 that he had a mother's concern for her bairns spiritually. And he says in the same passage in 1 Thessalonians that he had a father's concern about their spiritual well-being. And here as he comes to the end of the letter, something that in a sense has been under the surface all the way along, as it were, explodes into the open. And he reveals that one of the reasons he has presumably been writing this letter is because of the particular concerns that he has for them. The danger, as Neil Matthias was teaching the children, did you, by the way, instinctively reach into your hip pocket just to make sure your wallet was there this evening or check your purse? The danger that somebody might defraud you spiritually. Now, nobody could defraud this congregation spiritually, could they? After all, we know the letter to the Romans off by heart. We've studied the letter to the Romans. It was to the congregation that Paul so marvelously describes as having in verse 19 an obedience that is known to all, that he says to them, one of my deepest concerns for you is that you will be defrauded. And if I may dare to say so, at the end of the day, the church in Rome was profoundly defrauded. Just as the church in Ephesus, as we read in the book of Revelation, was profoundly defrauded. And so, as we look back, as it were, down through history and listen to Paul writing these words, we realize why this was such a burden to him, why he had such a pastoral concern for them, because he recognized that it was possible for Christian professors to be defrauded of gospel riches. And it's to this he draws our attention, doesn't he? First of all, in verses 17 through 19, when he addresses them about the serious danger of false teachers. Now, he doesn't tell us exactly what it was they were teaching, and that perhaps is advantageous to us so that we don't go down some rabbit trail and say, well, I've got hold of that wrong teaching, and so I am safe. But he sets before them certain principles, like our Lord Jesus does in the Gospels, to preserve us from the danger of false teachers, of being defrauded of our spiritual birthright. And in these brief words, he gives us a mass of helpful information about thinking clearly about the gospel in such a way that we will not be defrauded. He tells us, for example, what it is that's characteristic of false teachers, what they do. You notice they cause divisions, that is to say, they break into and then break down the unity of the body of Jesus Christ. I cannot underscore sufficiently how important the unity of the body of Jesus Christ is in any particular place, and that it is a damnable sin 
to disrupt that unity in the way Paul feared these false teachers were likely to do. I say it's damnable because this was almost the last thing that our Lord Jesus Christ prayed for, that his people would be one together in a fellowship that would mimic the fellowship he had with the Father because only in these circumstances would the world be able to look at the church and come to the conviction that only the Father's sending of the Son could produce this kind of glorious fellowship. And he is saying this hot on the heels of saying to the Christians in Rome, greet one another with a holy kiss because he knows there is such a thing as a poisonous kiss of those who create division, and one of the ways in which they do so, interestingly, again in verse 17, is by creating obstacles. Obstacles to what? Obstacles to the Lord Jesus. Anything that is a barrier to the Lord Jesus Christ is what the Apostle Paul is saying here. And at the end of the day, that is everything except the pure gospel. Does it matter really much to you that there are thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of pulpits in the Western world where the gospel of Jesus Christ is never clearly proclaimed? You go sometimes to church occasions and listen to men preaching, and you know that even if they were in a drunken stupor, if they've preached that sermon, they couldn't possibly preach the gospel. And my dear friends, if you think that that is an incidental matter and that one should not speak strongly against it, the Apostle Paul is saying anything that hinders the message that Christ Jesus died for sinners and that he alone is the only way and truth and life in the Father, is damnable teaching, because to trust it will at the end of the day damn you. And so the Apostle Paul says, if an angel from heaven came down into this pulpit and preached any other gospel, then let that angel be damned, he says. And of course, the tragedy of our situation, we just compare ourselves with the New Testament church at its best, and we understand the tragedy of our situation is because this doesn't disturb us very much because the gospel may not matter very much to us. We become antsy and uncomfortable at this kind of speech. It seems to be so, so much on the margins of the right wing. But Paul says, if anyone comes and preaches any other gospel but the gospel that's in my letters, let him be accursed. And he very speedily shows us the reason for this. He says, you just need to look at the fruits of these people, the hallmarks of their lives. They don't serve our Lord Jesus Christ. 
In all the talk, in all the speaking, you have no sense that they are utterly prostrated before the Lord Jesus Christ and say to him, every word that you speak, my blessed Lord Jesus, is the driving impulse of my life. And at the end of the day, they serve their own appetites, their own pleasures, their own ease. Why do we satisfy our appetites? Because it's easier to satisfy our appetites than to deny our appetites. And Paul also tells us how to recognize them. He says, because they teach what is contrary to the gospel. So, we need to be able to recognize false teachers. But the way to learn to recognize false teachers is not by going to the church library and getting all the books there are on false teaching in the modern church from A to Z, going home and studying them. The way you learn to recognize false teaching is to understand the gospel to which false teaching is contrary. Remember the old days? They may still do this in banks, for all I know, with all the gizmos and machines, when young bank tellers were taught to recognize forged banknotes, not by being taken into Fort Knox and shown some museum of all the conceivable forgeries in the United States of America, but by becoming so accustomed to handling the real thing that they instinctively recognized a false forgery. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying to us here. That's the very reason, or one of the reasons, we've been studying Romans. If you go and read all the books about some heresy that's on the go, as some Christians do, and sometimes do so foolishly, without immersing yourself, for example, in Romans, you miss the point Paul's making altogether. All you know prejudicially is the false teaching. But because you may not be familiar with the true teaching, there will be a false teaching that will come in and lead you astray. And our evangelical subculture, my dear friends, abounds in that kind of thing, doesn't it? People who are spiritually unable to tell the difference between the true gospel and the false gospel. Because, of course, as he says here, these people come along in verse 18, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. How do we avoid being naive? By knowing the Scriptures, by studying the Scriptures, by immersing ourselves in the Scriptures until the Scriptures flood our thinking and flow out of our feeling. And why at the end of the day is this so important? It's important for this reason that Paul says that false teaching will spread in our lives like gangrene. You are what you eat. Don't you sometimes wonder how much of the uh, 21st century's diseases and sicknesses are caused by what's in our food? And what's on the crops? 
And exactly the same is true spiritually. The real issue that Paul is driving at here is, what are you eating as a Christian? What are you consuming as a Christian? As I read the story of the New Testament church and the first two or three centuries of the Christian church, I've come to this conclusion, that in those centuries, Christians regarded false teaching as more dangerous than martyrdom. Why? Because martyrdom can never really kill you. False teaching always will. And that's why he's so desperately concerned, first of all, to warn them about the danger of false teachers. You remember maybe if you had letters from your mother or father like me, you wrote back saying, it's all right, mom. So did many of the college students who were with you in InterVarsity, or Reformed University Fellowship, or Navigators, or Campus Crusade. Find out where they are now, and you'll see that it maybe wasn't all right, mum, after all. So he warns against the danger of false teachers. Second thing I want you to notice here is that he gives them a glorious promise of deliverance. He wants them to be wise with respect to the truth and naive, innocent with respect to what is evil. And in order to encourage them in this, he gives them a marvelous promise, doesn't he, in verse 20 of deliverance. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's actually a summary of everything there is in the Bible between Genesis 3.15 and Romans 16.20. That's the whole Bible story. You remember the words of Genesis 3.15 to which Paul is making allusion that the coming Savior would crush the serpent's head even in the course of his own heel being crushed by the serpent. And he's referring, of course, to the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and to the way in which in being crushed with respect to his heel by the serpent, in his death, in his agony, in his shame, in his humiliation, he was in the process of crushing the serpent's head. And now Paul is saying to these believers what Jesus Christ did once and for all on the cross, which is the very heart and center of the gospel that I have been proclaiming. That same power of God will be released into your life, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now, I don't have time to explore this in any detail, but I want you to notice what may seem to be a language paradox here. The God of peace crushes. The God of peace crushes. You see that? You understand what that's saying? That in order to bring deliverance, God becomes violent to everything and anything that will damage his children. You like that God? I hope you love that God. 
Because I hope if you're a father with children or a grandfather with grandchildren, you would do the same thing to absolutely anything that would humiliate, mar, or compromise the sanctity of your son or daughter, your grandson or granddaughter's life. I hope you wouldn't just stand back and say, well, it's none of my business. Shame on us if we do that. We're not men or women if we do that. Why do we do that? For the very same reason that Paul says the God of peace will crush Satan under the feet of his own dear children shortly. You see, Paul has this massive sense of what it means to be a Christian, that we are living in a war zone spiritually, that we are surrounded by enemies, and that we need a deliverer. And he's promising his people in the face of all the pressures that there may be from insidious and false teaching that Jesus Christ is able to deliver them and Jesus Christ will deliver them. And that leads him thirdly to the wonderful sufficiency of grace. He begins with the serious danger of false teachers, encourages us with a glorious promise of deliverance, and then emphasizes to us the wonderful sufficiency of grace. Verse 20b, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, here's a question. In which of Paul's letters, there are 13 of them, in which of Paul's letters does this kind of expression not appear at the end of the letter? How well do you know your New Testament and your little paperback of Paul's letters? In how many of Paul's letters does this word of greeting fail to appear? There are 13 of them. And the answer is none of them. This is the one thing the Apostle Paul says in every single letter that he writes in one form or another, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, we use that expression every Sunday, twice a Sunday, sometimes more frequently. We hear that, apart from reading our New Testaments, we hear that in this church uh, probably 104 times a week, plus extra services. I wonder if it's ever crossed your mind to ask the question, and this will give some of you horrors at the thought of high school English, what is the force of that little word of? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. If I remember high school English, actually in my case it was high school Latin that they taught these things in, if I remember rightly, that's what they call the genitive, isn't it? But what does it mean? Do you remember holding your head in horror if you had a teacher who actually understood the genitive as he or she explained the genitive to you and you thought, I can't take all of these little distinctions in. Just give me a little of any time. There are genitives that are possessive, aren't they? This is the book of Sinclair Ferguson. means it belongs to Sinclair Ferguson. 
There are genitives that what they say are attributive. They describe the characteristic, perhaps the leading characteristic of someone. And that's the kind of genitive this is. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ means Jesus Christ grace. That is to say, if I can put it this way, as I quite often do, there is no such thing as grace. And it's important that we understand that. There is no thing called grace. That, for example, Jesus could say to us, I possess grace and I am now passing grace onto you as though it were some kind of substance or some kind of special experience. There's no thing called grace. There's only Jesus Christ who is gracious. So the only way, as we sometimes say, to receive grace is to receive the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now that's a very important thing to understand. It's a critical thing to understand. Because, of course, sometimes we call the Lord's Supper the means of grace. But we don't come to the Lord's Supper so that Jesus can, can give us a little bit of grace that will get us through the next week or through till the next time we're at the Lord's Supper. All we get at the Lord's Supper is Jesus. And so if you don't get Jesus at the Lord's Supper or Jesus in the preaching of the Word, you don't get grace because grace is to be found nowhere else in the cosmos except in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ himself, clothed as he is in all that he has done for us in the gospel. I hope you do understand that. Because my experience is that many people in churches still haven't understood that. They've come for the Lord's Supper or for the baptism or for service and say the creed. But it's possible to do all of these things and never actually come to the Lord Jesus Christ himself in whom all of God's grace is stored up. There is nowhere else and no one else in the cosmos to whom you or I can turn and find grace except by casting ourselves into the arms of the gracious Lord Jesus Christ. So when Paul says this, he's really praying, may Christ be yours, my dear friends in Rome. May Jesus Christ be yours. So the question is, is Jesus Christ mine? Because if Jesus Christ himself is not mine, whatever I may call it, I haven't received grace. I've received a figment either of a church's imagination or of my own imagination. 
That's one of the reasons why Paul says, watch out for those and avoid people who put obstacles, stumbling blocks in your way. Something between you and Jesus Christ. Anything between you and Jesus Christ is going to be a stumbling block to you trusting in Jesus Christ. And as we have noted in these studies in Romans, Paul is very concerned that we should be a well-taught and well-educated congregation, but he is not interested in big heads full of information. He's only interested in showing us a big Christ who is able to save to the uttermost all those who come to God through him. And when that's true, when he warns us against the danger of false teaching, gives us this glorious promise of ongoing deliverance in Jesus Christ, points us to the wonderful sufficiency of grace, then we enter into the final thing that we see in these verses, which is, of course, the rich fellowship of the gospel. Again, the the students of Romans sometimes very puzzled by this. You know, Paul seems to have come to an end, basically, of Romans in, in chapter 16, verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And then he dives into this about false teaching. And then he pronounces a benediction, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And then suddenly, suddenly what? Here's what I wonder. It's pure speculation pure speculation. But I wonder if there was a pause. I'm sure there were several pauses when Tertius was writing Romans, because on that kind of material, with that kind of writing implement, you couldn't write quickly. So I'm sure there were little pauses all the way through. But he's now, as it were, pronounced the the benediction. He's come to the end. And I wonder if he says to Tertius, you know, we shouldn't keep this to ourselves. Bring the fellows in. He was actually in the house of a man called Gaius. I wonder if he said, bring the, you know, I am personally convinced that the first people who ever heard Romans were not the Romans, but the Corinthians. And it wouldn't at all surprise me that Tertius left the room and got in this little crowd of people and said to them, you need to listen to this. You really need to listen to this letter that Paul has just written to the Romans. And as this little company fills the room, maybe they were there already listening to Paul dictating it. He looks around the room. At one point, he says to his secretary, tell them you're writing this letter yourself. But when he looks around the room, it's what he sees that is absolutely mind-boggling and such a great picture of what it means to enjoy the rich fellowship of the gospel. There's Timothy, verse 21, his fellow worker, the man in whose life he invested more than in anyone else. And, and Timothy, you remember, was from, from Lystra. And then there was Uh, Lucius. Could that have been Lucius the Cyrenian? He's the only other one in the New Testament called Lucius, 
I think Lucius the Cyrenian, who was one of the original seven that the apostles in Jerusalem set aside to share with them in the ministry, some think it may have been Luke, the author of the gospel, but whether it was Lucius from Cyrene or Luke the Gentile or someone else, he probably wasn't from around here. Then there's Jason, and Jason was from Thessalonica. And there's Sosipater, who's probably the same as Sopater from Berea in Acts 20. And there's Gaius, who's probably Gaius Titius Justus from Corinth. And there's Erastus, who's the city treasurer in Corinth. So there's somebody from Lystra, there's somebody perhaps from Cyrene, there's somebody from Thessalonica, there's somebody from Berea, there are a couple of guys from Corinth, and then there are two men, and perhaps they're the most fascinating of all, because they're the two men in Paul's letter to the Romans, who instead of having names had numbers. Ever feel that way? People just reduce you to a number. Well, they'd been given numbers for names, Tertius, which means third. And Quartus, was he Tertius's brother? Because that means fourth. And all of that means that one of the most significant ministries in the entire history of the Christian church, writing Romans was a ministry in which a man who had a number for a name was most strategically involved. If ever there could be an illustration of the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ uses the blessedly obscure, it's here. And if ever there were a wonderful illustration of the way in which the gospel breaks down racial barriers and language barriers and national barriers and natural barriers, it's this. These men were more at home in the living room of their host, Gaius, than some of them would have been in their own living rooms with their own families. I wonder what happened to number one and number two if number three and number four were brothers. Isn't that the blessedness of the Christian church? Do you, do you know that, my friends? Because this is, the, this is the birthright of all those who are Christ. And this is why Paul is so hostile against anything that would be a stumbling block to anyone coming to and living in the faith of Jesus Christ because this is far too valuable for mortal man to miss. But tragically, thousands do.
Wonderful, isn't it? And there was only one thing that drew them together, kept them together. I wonder if anyone in that little group as they, perhaps Paul read Romans to them, I wonder if any of them ever thought, Ten to fifteen years ago, this man would have been murdering me for being a Christian. And now I love him to death and to everlasting life. There's nothing like this in all the world. But are you inside and looking out? Are you still? Maybe even, maybe you've even heard every single exposition we've had in Romans, all 77 of them now. You're still on the outside looking in. You've never really come to a living faith in Jesus Christ. You know the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer, Ten Commandments, the Sermon, on the mount. But you've never really come to Jesus Christ. And you couldn't actually ever say to anybody, I came to Jesus and I found in him my shield and son. I found in him my resting place. Because all you know is about Jesus but you don't know Jesus himself. Come to him now. What's stopping you coming to him now and trusting him? And as the bread and the wine are brought to you, you're able to say to him with all your heart, you did this for me. And I give myself to you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to this table, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to us. That like this little group of friends in a sitting room in the great city of Corinth filled with immorality as it was, we may feel ourselves to be enclosed with our Lord Jesus Christ and may with great joy feast on the riches of his grace. Be with us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.